This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we are going to continue our breaking news coverage. Just moments ago, we got an update from Atlanta police about the manhunt underway for the man accused of a deadly mass shooting at a medical center. Police say that 24-year-old Dion Patterson should be considered armed and dangerous. A source says Patterson was at the building for an appointment when he became agitated. The Atlanta police chief says Patterson started shooting in the waiting room. At least one person has been killed, four others injured, all of the victims women. Within the last hour, Atlanta police lifted the shelter-in-place order for the areas around the medical center. Police say they believe Patterson carjacked a vehicle near the scene of the shooting as police were responding. Investigators say they have since found that car, but Patterson was not in it. We are dealing with someone that is armed and dangerous. Uh, This is a deadly situation. This individual um, has just indeed conducted an act that we want to make sure that you know that if you see him, do not approach, but you are to call 911. CNN's Ryan Young is live for us now near the crime scene in Midtown Atlanta. Ryan, tell us more about what we know about the suspect who remains on the run. Yeah, Jake, that is what's been uh, confirmed to us at this point, that he is still on the run after that carjacking. We've been able to move closer to the scene at this point. Um, this is the hospital complex that the shooting happened. You can still see an active scene with the officers in the front. But that's where the lobby is, and we believe that Mr. Patterson showed up here with his mother, who was concerned about him, and apparently he's an, a former service member, and it's in that lobby where the shooting occurred. And, of course, so many people were fearful. We've actually talked to folks who were in there with the nurses who were crying, and unfortunately someone lost their life. They started shutting down this entire area. So you can see that uh, building right here where that parking garage is. They just started letting some of the people who have been in this building for hours out of that parking garage. But here, look, they set the scene up. They were trying to make sure this entire area was locked down. Now they believe that carjacking happening ended up in Cobb County, which is about 10 minutes away from here. And, and they've recovered the car, but they don't know where he is just yet. So this is an active manhunt situation where they're trying to track this man down. And if you think about it, they were using the video cameras in this area to put out those surveillance pictures of him as he left the lobby. So you saw that hoodie and you also saw that canvas bag that was across his chest. Since then, they've improved the picture that they put forward with that license picture so people could see his face. There have been people who they thought were Mr. Patterson who they've actually pulled over and they haven't been. Now, the 911 calls have been pretty uh, coming in pretty at a steady pace. And they want to make sure they also have a Crime Stoppers number up. So, And there's a $10,000 reward that they're hoping that will help people make that phone call at this situation. But look, this is the active manhunt, Jake, that they're still looking for the suspect who is believed to shot all these people inside this facility right here that has everyone shaken. Ryan, do we have any update uh, on the woman who was killed or the other four women who were transported to Grady Hospital? Yeah, so that is a level one trauma center. And I believe there are some family members who have shown up to that Grady Hospital getting the worst news they could possibly get. We've also been told at some point the mayor's office is going to reach out to those victims But no one has been able to sort of leave, even the nurses here, some of them haven't been able to leave this facility to check on their loved ones, their friends who have been shot. So that's the part that we're still trying to put together, Jake. There are people who came to a facility for medical help today who were clearly not ready for a shooting to happen in a lobby with a man who uh, has been told a mother was concerned about. And they were working this situation to try to get him some help. 
and then unfortunately it went sideways. Jake? All right, Ryan Young in Atlanta for us. Uh, thank you. We'll come back to you as soon as you have more to report. Let's, let's bring in now CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller, CNN National Security Analyst Juliet Kayem, and the former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. Uh, Andrew McCabe, let me start with you. Atlanta police say they believe the suspect carjacked a vehicle after the shooting. They have since found the car. The suspect was not with it. Um, what are the biggest challenges uh, for police right now, and how are they going to catch him? I guess his cell phone would be the easiest way to track him down, assuming he still still has one on him. Yeah, so Jake, so unfortunately, uh, we've all had a lot of practice in, in learning about this over the last few weeks, tracking the issue in uh, Texas. Uh, so you'll see the same sort of investigative activity here now. This has turned from a clearing operation inside of a building into a full-blown manhunt. So the question is, how do you track this individual? Does he have, does he use social media? Does he have a cell phone that he might be carrying? Has he communicated to family members or friends or associates and in an effort to f- secure additional transportation or support or shelter? Uh, those are all those kind of uh, nodes of, of investigative leads that the investigators will be we'll be looking into and really digging up over the next couple of hours to try to get back on the tail of this person as he uh, flees the scene. Juliet, it, it appears the suspect had a gun on him, but at the same time, he carjacked a vehicle after the shooting. So what's your assessment as to whether this was impulsive or, or pre-planned? Yeah. Well, I think we, we, just based on experience, we should probably assume that he intended uh, to do something with the gun. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was suicide. And he brings it to a facility where he is going to be the patient. He's an adult male who's going with his mother. We don't know what kind of duress he he was under. We don't know how voluntary this is. The, the parents seem very engaged and concerned uh, about his uh, mental health. So, uh, so uh, that would mean uh, that uh, that he uh, probably does not have a sophisticated exit strategy at this stage and is either trying to hijack cars or just get out of the way uh, uh, of where the police are. These often end in suicide uh, by the the perpetrator uh, who finds himself with no options, obviously. Uh, and the best case scenario is that uh, he is caught without any additional violence to others and to himself. John, we heard Atlanta police mention a number of different uh, police departments and agencies involved in the search. How, how do you get so many people on the same page when a situation is rapidly changing like this? Well, that's the mutual aid package that a city like Atlanta is used to. I mean, Atlanta PD is about uh, authorized strength is about 2000 cops. They may be a little short of that uh, if they're like most police departments. But they've got assistance from the county sheriff, from the Georgia State Police, from GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And they all come together during a major incident, along with FBI, ATF, um, and uh, Homeland Security Investigations. You know, this is a police department that has been trained in active shooter tactics. They, uh, They work with the alert training going back to 2016, which is the forming of contact teams with the first immediate responders and going in to meet the threat. Um, From all reports we've heard so far, it sounds like that's what they did today. But this shooting happened in a very short space of time. And the suspect fled uh, within that time as police were just arriving. They set up that perimeter to try and contain him. And it appears 
although this is still very fluid and information is preliminary, that he may have gotten away through this carjacking. Uh, we have one report of a carjack auto that was recovered in Cobb County, another report of an attempted carjacking. It's possible he may have tried it once before he successfully was able to get uh, a car to get away in. Um, Atlanta has also trained civilians in active shooter. In other words, if you're caught in that situation, what to do. A lot of private corporations, banks, um, companies headquarters there have been trained in what they call avoid, delay, defend, uh, which is a version of run, hide, and fight uh, that we see in that training. They do have the 3,000 3, cameras across the cities, uh, a large concentration of those in that downtown area, which they've been actively using to try and retrace the suspect's steps from the time he left that location to get them a trail to where he's headed. If you look at, uh, Jake, the possible outcomes here, and you use last year as a measure um, against active shooter situations, uh, there were 50 active shooter situations in 2022, 313 casualties, 100 of those died. But if you look at the outcomes with the shooter, nine killed themselves, seven were killed in confrontations with police, two by armed citizens who intervened before police got there. But 29, and this is the larger number compared to that 18, 29 were apprehended, um, either uh, overpowered by police or after a dialogue with police were able to surrender. So the odds are in the favor of police and the suspect that if they can engage in a dialogue, uh, that they should be able to get him to surrender. His mother um, is still cooperating with police. She may be a voice in that dialogue if they get um, a chance to get him contained somewhere and start talking. Yeah, and we just saw with the big manhunt in Texas uh, where that shooter, uh, that alleged shooter, was apprehended. Everyone stand by because I want to bring in Josh McLaurin right now. He's a state senator from North Fulton, uh, Georgia. Uh, senator um, McLaurin, earlier today you were one of the presumably thousands uh, of Atlantans uh, forced to shelter in place. Um, when you were doing that, uh, were you getting information in, in real time? Were you afraid? T tell us what that was like. Hi, sure. Yeah, I was at the restaurant directly next door to the North Side building, uh, which, you know, is where my primary care doctor is uh, also. And uh, uh, in the middle of lunch, I just started hearing people say, hey, you know, we're on lockdown. There's an active shooter next door, uh, which, you know, I'd never been that close to an active shooter situation before. So, you know, we locked all the doors. Police came through. We're giving us a little bit of information. But main message they had for us was you got to stay here. We're not letting anybody out, in or out. Um, and occasionally over the next two or three hours, we got a couple updates about what was happening. But we had to go to Twitter and local news to try to get a sense of what the story was. So you were inside the restaurant and you basically just stayed inside the restaurant? That's correct. I mean, you know, we went upstairs uh, for a little bit or, you know, a couple people stayed seated, continued to have their meal and try to just stay normal, stay calm. But I, I mean, the thing I was overwhelmed by today is just th this is how people are expected to live now. I mean, it, you, you could just go out to lunch or go to the doctor's office or, or go to daycare, which is nearby and, and drop your kid off. And you could have a lockdown the last most of the day and be covered with this fear and uncertainty about what's happening to your loved ones. Yeah, this is now the state of the news as well, where we come on air and we have to cover mass shootings and suspects on the lam as a regular matter, of course. This is just the second highest profile one in the last week. Um, you're now uh, out of the restaurant, out of the shelter from a place. The, the threat's obviously not, not over. The suspect remains 
uh, on the run. Um, are you hearing anything more about the danger that he uh, may still pose? Are you hearing anything more about the victims? Yeah, I, you know, I know that one uh, victim tragically is deceased and that there's several in critical condition from a Grady uh, press conference I saw earlier, Grady Hospital, our level one trauma center nearby. Um, heard rumors about uh, things happening on Northside Drive, reported gunfire, maybe a carjacking, there's rumors about that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the information is really hard to get, hard to get reliable information. And, you know, even just now in the last hour or so, people started uh, coming out of their shelters in place around all the workplaces around here, um, including the restaurant I was at. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think anybody feels safe. I think that it's it's just going to be a cloud that kind of covers this area for the rest of the day, at least. What are you telling family and, and, and friends to do? I'm sure you're getting a lot of calls. You're a state senator. People want to look to you. And if uh, Governor Kemp isn't out there or the mayor of Atlanta aren't out there saying what people should be doing, uh, they want to they want to hear from somebody in leadership. What, what's your advice? Sure. I mean, you know, there's all the normal advice in time of crisis. Make sure you stay safe, check on your loved ones, uh, have a plan. You know, obviously the north side had protocols in place. Grady has protocols in place. Uh, but, but you know, people are looking to us for a legislative response. I mean, there's all this talk over the last few years about politicization of crime. Look, I'm not happy to be here. I would have liked to go home after a nice lunch where none of this happened. But if it's going to happen, we're going to talk about it. And I think the thing we need to talk about is red flag legislation and mental health in this country. It's not enough to just devote dollars to mental health. We have to understand that weapon. I mean, today, I guess it was a pistol, but, you know, some people have access to AR-15s and other more serious weapons. People in a state of mental health crisis simply should not have access to those weapons. And I think you have strong majorities of Georgians and Americans who agree with that. Regardless of which party is in control of the state capitol, they want to see that action. So we need to pick our heads up out of the sand as a state, and we need to do something about this at the legislative level. All right, Josh McLaurin, a state senator from Georgia, thank you so much for your time. We're glad you're okay, sir. Thank you. I appreciate your concern. We're uh, following the breaking news, a manhunt in Atlanta. Police looking for the man who shot five people in Midtown Atlanta. One of them is now dead. Four of the victims went to Grady Hospital. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta works at a neighboring hospital in Atlanta. We're going to talk to him next. Stay with us. And we are back with our breaking news coverage, a manhunt underway in Atlanta, Georgia, after a mass shooting at a medical center. Police say they believe the 24-year-old suspect carjacked a vehicle after shooting five people in the waiting room, killing one of them. At least three of the other victims are in critical condition, we're told. Tyresia Woods works inside the building where the shooting happened. This is what she told CNN about how she saw everything unfold. I alerted my front office staff team that someone was shooting. And right after that, one of our team members was alerted by another person in the building that there was blood in the elevator on our floor as far as like the building security goes i don't think that it's safe because we have active shooters in midtown so often our buildings are locked down a lot because there are no metal detectors our security are just that security we don't have real police officers um guarding and protecting our facilities and with this being an ongoing thing in midtown at all times i just really feel unsafe working, you know, in that area. Let's bring in CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He's, uh, in addition to our medical man, he's the associate chief of neurosurgery at Grady Hospital uh, right nearby. Um, Sanjay, what are you hearing about those patients, the four women that were transferred to the other hospital? Uh, They're being treated where you work. Yeah, no, I, I, I know. And I, I've been talking to people at the hospital. These are, these are colleagues and we deal with this all the time. I can tell you there's so there's 
four patients, as you mentioned. One patient uh, was, was shot in the abdomen, uh, Jake, and is still in the operating room. Another patient was shot in the arm, uh, is still in the operating room. Another patient was shot in the face and required procedures using what is known as interventional radiology. You, basically, it was concerns about bleeding from blood vessels, and that bleeding uh, has been addressed using these, these radiology techniques, putting catheters into the blood vessels and stopping the bleeding. And the fourth patient is stable. Um, but you know these patients um, that are still in the operating room, they are considered in critical condition, meaning that they uh, have been needing medications to maintain their blood pressure. So it's, it's, it's pretty touch and go still for at least a couple of these patients, Jake. And the sad state of medical care in the United States today is um, that a lot of doctors in emergency rooms and a lot of surgeons uh, now have to be expert in battle wounds as if they were yeah. uh, medics or physician's assistants in Iraq or Afghanistan 10 years ago. It, it, is, it, is, it is really uh, remarkable, Jake. I mean, I just, I've been you know, uh, a surgeon now for you know, over 20 years, 25 years, and, and the types of injuries that we see have totally changed, uh, as, as you're alluding to. I can also tell you, you know, you look at these numbers, but I want to give you some context. At Grady Hospital in the year 2022, we had 1,215 patients come into our hospital with gunshot wounds, more than 100 a month uh, coming into the hospital. So, you know, this is obviously a really atrocious, sad situation. It is a very common situation as well. I just was listening to that nurse that you uh, had talking right before me, said at Northside where this happened, there aren't metal detectors over there. Uh, Since October of last year, uh, Jake, we have metal detectors at every entrance at Grady Hospital because there's such significant and heightened concerns about the hospital itself becoming uh, the location where these shootings take place. So, um, you know, uh, this is obviously, they were, they're prepared to take care of mass casualty incidents at a place like Grady. It's a level one trauma center. They have operating rooms on standby. They have blood on standby. Obviously the personnel, the nurses, the trauma surgeons on standby. Uh, and they were, they would have been ready. They were preparing, as you heard, Jake, to take care of 12 patients potentially. That was the initial, uh, thing that we had all heard. Um, it's obviously fewer than that, thankfully, but still, um, what you're seeing unfold in terms of the medical care is sadly just too common an occurrence there. Yeah. And and we've heard the argument uh, from people who are on the more guns is a safer community argument that that uh, relaxing gun ownership rules, relaxing uh, gun uh, requirements in terms of training and, and the like will actually result in a safer society. Georgia is a pretty a red state uh, when it comes to gun laws. Um, have you seen anecdotally, I don't know what data you might have at your fingertips, I'm just surprising you with this question, but is there any evidence that uh, uh, more guns out there is actually making Georgia safer? Uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't have the data, but I can tell you this, the number of, of these types of injuries, penetrating injuries that, and the vast majority of penetrating injuries are gunshot wounds. The numbers have just continued to go up. Um, that that we can say. So if you look at that as a metric alone, more guns out there. What do we see from a medical personnel standpoint? We see more gunshot wounds, and we see more just devastating gunshot wounds. I mean, my understanding here, from what I'm hearing from these these reports, is that this was a handgun that was used today. When you start to look at these assault rifles, the types of injuries that you're seeing, if patients even can make it to the hospital, uh, you know, without dying first, 
are, are uh, far more significant. So the number of injuries and the severity of those injuries has gone up, Jake. I mean, it, it does fluctuate a little bit year to year. I mean, you know, it's not always a straight line, but 1,215 gunshot wounds to one hospital last year. It's 100 a month. It's three, more than three a day uh, on average that we're seeing. And, and that, that's a number that has no signs of sort of abating right now. Yeah, and it is a policy choice that people are making. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. This just in, the U.S. Coast Guard now confirming that the suspect in today's shooting served in the Coast Guard for nearly five years. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us. Orrin, uh, what else are you hearing from the U.S. Coast Guard today? Jake, we're learning uh, just a little, a little bit more here about the background of Dion Patterson. As you said, we got a statement from the Coast Guard a short time ago, and that statement tells us that Patterson joined the Coast Guard in July 2018. He was then there until he was discharged in January 2023, so he was in the Coast Guard for about four and a half years. He was discharged as an electrician's mate second class, again, until January 2023, so only four months ago at this point. The Coast Guard also says their investigative service is working with Atlanta Police Department and local police as part of the investigation. The Coast Guard goes on to say, of course, our deepest sympathies are with the victims and their families. Jake, we have asked for more information where Patterson had been deployed as part of the Coast Guard, where he had been stationed. We'll see if we can get that information to you. All right, Oren, thank you so much. Uh, We're going to continue to monitor this tragedy in Atlanta, deadly mass shooting, and a manhunt right now underway. We're going to talk to the former Atlanta police chief. That's next. Stay with us. And we're back with our breaking news coverage. Police are stepping up patrols in the northern Atlanta, Georgia suburbs as the manhunt for a mass shooting suspect expands. Police say 24-year-old Dion Patterson killed one person and injured four others in a medical center waiting room earlier today. Investigators believe he then stole a car near the scene in the moments after the shooting. Police have since found that car, though Patterson was not inside. With us now, former Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields. Uh, Chief Shields, um, just so our viewers understand, this is a vast search area in terms of size, in terms of population. Uh, Are you hearing anything from officials involved in this massive manhunt? And and, uh, describe how much this entails to find this individual. So the the officers responded really quickly and they did they managed to follow him on our those cameras for quite a distance. And I think They've recovered the car now up in the area of Brave Stadium, which is a suburb, Cobb County, of the city. So it's a huge expanse of a landmass. The good news is the Braves are out of town tonight. Um, it's it's a lot of territory. It's uh, You're talking miles and miles. The good news is there's very strong working relationships between the agencies because the communication has to be seamless. The shooting happened on um, a... a, a medical in a medical building uh the suspect was able to get back to the streets of midtown allegedly carjacked a vehicle in broad daylight and now no one knows exactly where he may be how is the security in this area in general and uh what would you advise anybody in that general area to do right now so I, the area that we're speaking of has really become very robust with uh, restaurants, shopping, uh, residential condominiums in the last few years since the Atlanta Braves moved out there. So I would say out of an abundance of caution, I would, I would be sheltering in, space, uh, in place if possible. Um, the difficulty is getting people to sit upright and realize really they, they don't know where this person is. 
And you just uh, you just cannot assume that it's not that he's not going to be showing up at your back door. And I don't mean that as a fear factor, but you just really have to be practical about this. The police will get him. Um, but it's uh, until they do, you just don't know what this individual is going to do. They're, they're obviously in a, a very bad place mentally. Atlanta police mentioned a network of cameras uh, that could be used to help track down the suspect. Tell us more about how these cameras might work uh, and how it might be used in this very fluid manhunt situation. So the cameras uh, right as it, within the downtown area are really, it's a very robust system, which is how they were able to follow him and see him steal a car and, and leave the facility and steal a car. Um, you can track the license plates so that can help you recover the car. But right now the problem is, is he on foot or has he taken another vehicle? So you're kind of, they're kind of just doing what any of us would be doing right now. And that is trying to go building through building, rely on tips that they've received from the public, which is huge. Um, but it's a very methodical process that you have to do with an abundance of caution because you just don't know when you're going to possibly bump into him. Um, the city went through something horrible years ago uh, with Brian Nichols, our courthouse shooter. And People just really, they let down their guard, including the police, and the consequences were tragic because he was he was right within a residential area. And it's uh, 4.33, approaching 4.34 p.m. East Coast time in Atlanta, essentially rush hour uh, for the whole area. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are you concerned uh, for residents? More people are going to be heading out, heading home, heading on the roads. roads. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that anybody is heading into danger, but theoretically somebody could be. I think that it's, you know, they're going to, there are abundance of officers and I'm sure the police will be shutting down um, uh, streets where they feel that there is the potential for this individual to be. Um, And I think the greatest issues that you're probably going to see is traffic tie-ups. But for the most part, I think the fact that the officers seem to have a fairly good idea of where the individual may be should provide a level, a layer of security in the, the appropriate areas, hopefully. All right, former Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields, thank you so much. Let's bring back our law enforcement analyst, Juliet Kayyem. You just heard the news from uh, Oren Lieberman that the suspect was a member, a former member of the U.S. Coast Guard. That does presume that he has some military training, some experience with firearms. Is that relevant to the manhunt and to the investigation? It, it absolutely would be. I mean, he was um, a, a couple of things here. So Coast Guard is a law enforcement agency as much as it is a military component. So we'll have the the additional training. It's a you know, it basically does maritime extraditions. His exact title, it may sound complicated. It, it's, it's essentially someone who watches the wires and the data and the operations from a ship. So he's sort of a, a guardsman who's looking at, you know, wh- where are we, where, where are we navigating to? It does not appear that when he was discharged, that that had anything to, uh, that he had anything to do with sort of uh, uh, weaponry. Uh, I, we're not, the, coast, the DHS, the agency overseeing the Coast Guard would have told us if he was honorably discharged, they just say discharge. That could be for a number of reasons, which sometimes involves mental and uh, physical, uh, uh, not satisfying mental and physical standards, uh, failure to adjust to orders or, or 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 new placements, and then fraudulent behavior or enlistments. Because he was in close to five years, uh, they're monitoring his. It's not like he just showed up. They're monitoring his behavior, and then 
trying to minimize whatever's happening and then ultimately determine that he he needs to be discharged. One final thing. Uh, this is, you know, this this discharge just happened in January. Uh, so this is a period in which, you know, his parents are are also noting it and and uh, his his stress or whatever's happened. So it's a very compressed time period in terms of what's going on for him. Yeah. And we'll find out more, no doubt, uh, about his separation yeah. from the U.S. Coast Guard and, and why that happened and under what conditions uh, quite often uh, individuals who are experiencing problems. And I know nothing about this specific case, but quite often the military kind of just like shows them the door and, and, uh, and that's all that is done. Um, Andrew McCabe, uh, how is this investigation, do you think, changing as the day goes on, as we get further and further away from the last known location of the suspect? Well, Jake, it's becoming more of a traditional manhunt at this point. And, you know, you can pretty conclude, uh, pretty confidently assume that this, uh, this suspect is not someone who went into the situation with the kind of the resources and the forethought that somebody would put into a planned escape or, you know, uh, planning some sort of long-term uh, period running, evading from law enforcement. This is something that happened in the heat of the moment, uh, and now he finds himself fleeing from law enforcement. So under those circumstances, it's always the vast majority of cases offenders are gravitate towards people they know, people in their circle, whether that's family members, uh, friends, colleagues, extended family members, uh, to seek shelter, places to hide, transportation, things like that. So that's the first thing that law enforcement is doing right now, trying to define that universe of friends, family, and associates who this person might rely on. Those people are all being contacted. They're being interviewed. Uh, People who are particularly likely assessed as being likely uh, uh, to maybe help are probably under some sort of surveillance at this point. And then, of course, they're looking at the technical means. If there is a cell phone or credit cards or things like that that associate with the suspect, they'll be tracking those devices as they interact with our communication systems. Andrew McCabe and Juliet Kayyem, stick around. Uh, we're going to come back to you. We're going to go back live to an Atlanta next where that manhunt remains underway. What are we we learning now about the lockdowns and what are we learning about the man police say is responsible for this tragedy? That's next. And we're back with our breaking news coverage. The manhunt for a mass shooting suspect in Atlanta, Georgia, continues. The Atlanta police chief said they have had minimal contact in the past with the suspect in the shooting, 24-year-old Dion Patterson. Police say Patterson was at a medical center with his mother for an appointment this morning when he started shooting in the waiting room. Investigators say other family members are cooperating with their investigation. Let's bring in CNN's Nick Valencia now. He's on the ground in Atlanta for us. Nick, what, what is the latest near the scene of the crime? Jake, the police have softened this perimeter and allowed us to get closer to where this shooting incident happened. You could see that facility right behind me with no less than a half a dozen Atlanta police officers still standing guard outside that facility. They're joined by dozens of Atlanta police officers, including unmarked cars. We mentioned the perimeter has softened, and it was uh, earlier, about an hour and a half ago, that they lifted the shelter-in-place order here. But almost minutes after that, there was sort of a chaotic scene that we want to show you that we captured video of to speak to just how amped up the situation is here. We mentioned that shelter in place was lifted, but just minutes afterwards, we heard what appeared to sound like gunshots. And then we saw Atlanta police officers in heavy tactical gear sprinting towards their cars, carrying long guns and shotguns. We also saw another SWAT vehicle show up and crime scene tape go back up. 
We asked the Atlanta Police Department uh, what happened, and they said that the incident was actually uh, an Atlanta uh, police officer that was involved in an accident, and the colleagues were responding to that. Uh, but it was a really, you know, sort of uh, overwhelming response for that to be the case, and speaks to just how tense things are here. There have been multiple sightings of this 24-year-old suspect, Dion Patterson, in and around the Atlanta area. Uh, in the suburbs, Cobb County, about 30 minutes outside the city center, they are actively involved in searching uh, for this suspect, who is still very much so on the loose, considered armed and dangerous. Back here in Atlanta, uh, I mentioned that perimeter has softened, but still very much so an active scene as police work to get answers behind the motive of this shooting. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia, thank you so much. We just learned we expect a news conference to begin in just a few minutes about those four victims in the Atlanta shooting who were taken to the hospital. Of course, there was a fifth victim who was killed on the scene of the crime. We will bring that to you as soon as it begins we're going to squeak in, uh, sneak in a quick break. We'll be right back in a second. And we're back with our breaking news. In just minutes, we're expecting an update from hospital officials after the mass shooting in Atlanta earlier today. Four people were injured. Three of those four remain in critical condition. One of the victims was killed, a fifth victim. We're going to bring that press conference for you live when it comes. While we wait for that update, I want to bring back CNN Chief Law Enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. Uh, John, police say that the suspect's family is cooperating uh, with police. Uh, what, what kind of questions would be asked of them? Well, they're going to try to learn as much about Dion Patterson as possible. Um, they brought him in for an evaluation to this clinic today. Um, what was the basis of that evaluation? What were the things that were bothering him? Um, you know, what does he what does he suffer from in terms of anxiety, paranoia? and so on. Um, I think part of the tell there is he showed up, you know, wearing a satchel across uh, the front of his hoodie that contained a semi-automatic pistol. What else is in that satchel? We don't know. Um, in the past, with active shooters, we've seen either an additional weapon or additional ammunition. And, you know, this is not like tracking the normal criminal manhunt Yes, the tools and the techniques are the same, but at the end, when police, um, if and when police confront this subject, uh, they have the uphill battle of dealing with someone who is already emotionally overwrought in all likelihood, uh, may already be paranoid to some degree, and to, to that degree, if he thought people were after him before, that's actually a fact of his life right now because he's the suspect in a multiple shooting in a homicide case. So if they're able to find him and slow things down and contain him, uh, that's the kind of thing where a trained hostage negotiator who has a background in having a conversation where they can talk somebody down from high tensions, um, do some active listening, run the clock, um, and spend some time uh, is probably the ideal situation uh, so that this doesn't turn into a second shooting incident. And Atlanta PD has very experienced people, both on their SWAT team and on their hostage negotiating team. One other aspect to look at here is about Georgia and guns. Uh, Georgia is a state where um, anyone who lawfully possesses a gun, that means somebody without a criminal record, and our subject here does not have a serious criminal record of any kind. Um, he's not a professional criminal. He's uh, an individual who was discharged by the Coast Guard in, I think, 2023 and has been going through these struggles. But 
He does possess a firearm. His mom was concerned about his mental state. Um, Georgia is a place where you can carry that firearm openly or concealed in most public places. Um, and there is no red flag law um, in place there to remove weapons from someone going through emotional trauma. John, when police are looking for an individual like this suspect who has already shot five people, killed one of them, critically wounded three of them, uh, obviously he is presumed armed and dangerous. He is also a veteran, as you noted. He was with the U.S. Coast Guard until earlier this year. Does the fact that he might be well-trained with firearms because of his military Coast Guard experience, does that change anything uh, in terms of the way they approach him, given that they already are considering him armed and presumed dangerous? I mean, armed and dangerous is armed and dangerous. The fact that he is well-trained in the Coast Guard, and, and remember, Jake, I mean, the Coast Guard is a hybrid of a military organization, but also a law enforcement organization. Uh, they, their weapons training is very much like law enforcement as they do ship boardings and interdictions of narcotics crews and so on. Um, so he's somebody that they're going to be very careful with. Uh, distance and time is going to be their friend if they can get it. All right, John Miller, thank you for your expertise. As always, appreciate it. We're standing by for new information about the victims of the Atlanta shooting. We're also following that alarming claim from the Kremlin today, accusing Ukraine of launching a drone attack, uh, claiming that they now reserve the right to retaliate. Uh, what does Ukraine have to say about this claim? What does the United States think? Plus, exclusive CNN reporting about the testimony that former Vice President Mike Pence gave to a grand jury and word that the special counsel overseeing the investigation actually sat in on the interview. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it wasn't us. Ukrainian officials privately as well as publicly saying that they were not behind the alleged drone attack in Moscow, Russia overnight. Is this another false flag incident carried out by the Kremlin on themselves? Plus, a CNN exclusive, sources say that special counsel Jack Smith sat in on former Vice President Mike Pence's testimony before the federal grand jury investigating January 6th. What was Smith hoping to hear? And leading this hour... Any moment, we're expecting an update from hospital officials in Atlanta, Georgia, after the mass shooting earlier today. A manhunt underway right now for 24-year-old Dion Patterson, who police say shot five people in a medical waiting room, killing one of them, sending four of them to the hospital. Investigators believe Patterson then stole a car to flee the scene. They've now since recovered that car. They're expanding the search to Atlanta's northern suburbs to find Patterson. Let's go to CNN's Nick Valencia, who's on the scene in Midtown Atlanta. Nick. We're hearing that there have been several reported sightings of the suspect. Uh, tell us about that. Tell us where the manhunt stands now. That's right. Just a short time ago, Cobb County Police Department tweeting out an update saying that they've responded to several false reports, false sightings of this individual just about 30, more than 30 minutes outside of the city center from where we're standing here with this incident unfolded earlier. And it's interesting, Jay, because the same thing was happening here in Atlanta, according to the APD spokeswoman, saying that different uh, sightings of this individual, none of them had panned out. Uh, we did see uh, a tense moment and just speaking to just how amped up police are here. And it's still very much so an active scene, even though this perimeter has softened up. There's still several Atlanta Police Department officers outside of the North Side Medical Center where this shooting unfolded, where 24-year-old Dion Patterson is alleged to have opened fire, killing at least one person, uh, all of them women, uh, ranging from 25 years old to 71 years old. 
the, the deceased is a 39-year-old woman. Uh, we're told that shortly after the shooting unfolded here, that individual carjacked somebody nearby just a few blocks away, and that vehicle was recovered in Cobb County, which speaks to why that law enforcement presence is actively looking for Patterson in the area. Still very much so an active manhunt with this individual considered to be extremely dangerous and, of course, armed as well. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia, thank you. Let's discuss with our law enforcement experts, former Philadelphia Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey, former Secret Service agent Jonathan Wackrow, and uh, former Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields. It's been several hours uh, since uh, the shooting occurred. Uh, Chief Ramsey, uh, is there some sort of, like, um, I, I, I want to say magic hour, but that's the wrong term, but, but is, there, is there a period under which that they need to find this individual for hope, if they have any hopes of catching him, for example, before sunset? Well, I mean, the longer it goes... Oh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. I'm going to I'm gonna interrupt. The, the, the hospital presser is starting right now for an update. Let's listen Time, in. One is still in the operating room. The other uh, patient is coming out of the operating room. Operating room. We have one patient who had a uh, procedure in interventional radiology, which was completed. They will have additional studies done. And one patient remains stable in the trauma center. Sure. When you certainly have certain types of injuries, particularly vascular injuries, sometimes we're able to go to radiology rather than the operating room to repair that injury or take care of it. So it's, it's still an invasive procedure. It's usually done under anesthesia, but it is in a different area of the hospital, not in the main operating room. Sure. So we had four people brought in by EMS. Of those, one is still in the operating room, um, probably the most seriously injured. Another patient just got out of the operating room and is doing well. We had a third patient who had a procedure in interventional radiology, and they will have to have additional procedures to follow up. And then the final patient is still in the trauma center, probably does not require surgery and is doing well. Well, I don't know how many times each one was shot, um, really because of patient confidentiality. I don't want to get into the, the nature of the wounds. I think that would be a little uh, unusual. Were any of these cases particularly challenging for the surgeons? Well, two of them were particularly serious, um, the ones that went to the operating room. And the one in the interventional radiology was in critical condition, too. So all three of those are very serious injuries. If it is primarily an injury to the blood vessels, we're frequently able to take care of that in interventional radiology as opposed to having to open the patient up in an operating room. Interventional radiology is where you go in through the blood vessels using special catheters and are able to take care of the injury that way. Can we talk about the flow of patients, maybe not specifically with this case, but the flow of patients coming into the ED and then moving throughout the hospital to OR to another place? Right. So in this particular case, as I said, Great EMS brought all four patients here. They arrived within 20, 30 minutes of each other. We were already prepared in the, in the trauma center. We had trauma surgeons, nurses, all the staff ready. So as soon as they came into the trauma center, they were put into a trauma room and were treated immediately. 
Two of those were taken immediately up to the operating room. We had the operating rooms open and ready, so they went directly from the emergency department to the operating room. The other one went from straight from the uh, emergency room to the interventional radiology suite. None of them were delayed by more than a, you know, any time at all because we were ready for them immediately. It's been going on a number of hours. They've, I don't know. It's probably about three or four hours. Were all four of them shot? These were all gunshot? Yes, they were all they were all gunshot wounds. And you mentioned earlier this afternoon that there were at least two families here. Have yes. Families arrived? I'd have to. I haven't checked back to the emergency department to see. Hopefully, they have arrived. So it's fair to say three are still in critical Pardon? Three are still in critical Yes. The fourth is stable. Can you talk about the next steps with these next few hours look like for yeah. the medical teams taking care right. of them? So, obviously, we've got to finish the surgery on the one patient who's still in the operating room. They will go to the surgery intensive care unit. The other patient who finished surgery will go to the intensive care unit. The one who went to the interventional radiology suite is in the intensive care unit. So all three of those have got, are either in the intensive care unit or will be going there afterwards because they are still critically ill. They will be treated by the trauma surgeons who staff the critical care units. And you said earlier that you were totally prepared. All right, let's, uh, let's bring in CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta because he is the Associate Chief of Neurosurgery at that very hospital, Grady Hospital, where the four uh, surviving victims of this shooting incident uh, were taken. Uh, and Sanjay, just to go, to go over what the doctor said, uh, of the of the four people that were brought there, uh, one of them is in the trauma center and will likely not need surgery. I think I, I think all four are women. She will not need surgery. Of the other three, right. one is still in the operating room, is seriously injured. A second is out of the operating room and is doing well. And then the that fourth individual uh, it had what you referred to us. Uh, you told us earlier uh, interventional radiology. Uh, taking care of her wounds through blood vessels, through catheters, and will require additional procedures. I think that's the one you said who was shot in the face. Right. Yeah. No, you have, you have it exactly right. And, and you know, the, there's one patient, as you mentioned, still in the operating room. That's a patient who I can tell you was shot in the abdominal area, Jake. Another patient who's just leaving the operating room, shot in the arm. Um, and then that third patient you mentioned, um, had been shot in the face, and they caused significant bleeding. And as you just heard Dr. Jansen mention, we talked about it last hour as well, you can, you can sometimes control that bleeding by putting catheters directly into the blood vessels, which is what they did there. Uh, as, as you heard, these patients are, are still considered in critical condition, those three that had procedures. They may likely, uh, in fact, for almost certain, will need additional procedures over the next several days. So this is the first type of procedure, especially uh, to, to in the abdominal patient, for example, to stop bleeding. Um, but then the patient may need to come back, uh, you know, maybe even several times now to address all the other wounds that an injury like this causes to the abdomen. Injuries to solid organs, the intestines, liver, spleen, whatever else may have been injured, that's all going to need to be addressed as well. So this is a long road now in front of these patients, Jake. Yeah, and that's one of the things that often gets lost in these in the our coverage of these shooting incidents. We tend to focus on those who are killed for obvious reasons, right. uh, but quite often there are people who have serious wounds that will forever 
forever uh, cause them lifetime, uh, lifetimes of pain. Um, just one thing, and I think I understand it, but just uh, to help us understand, it seems as though somebody shot in the face in this instance uh, may not have had as serious a wound, uh, as serious an injury as somebody shot in the abdomen. The abdomen, the abdominal patient is still in surgery, uh, still in critical, whereas the other individual shot in the face, which is not to say that her wounds are, are not serious, uh, but, uh, but just help us understand why uh, the facial wound might not be as serious in terms of life or death as the abdominal wound. Well, it, it can be very serious. First of all, when you talk about facial wounds, the, the first thing we ask in, is, did this, does this also affect the brain? Was it something that was below the skull, below the brain rather, or was it something that affected the brain as well? In this case, it sounds like it did not. The big concern with facial sort of gunshot wounds is you have a lot of blood vessels there. A lot of bleeding can occur. And you also, if the bullet wound actually starts to get a little bit lower, it can get into the neck area as well. And that's where your carotid arteries, people can feel their carotid arteries, uh, big blood vessels are in the neck. That is likely, you know, the, the, the type of procedure, this interventional radiology, IR, as we call it, procedure, that's what it typically focuses on. Putting a catheter through that carotid artery, finding the exact source of where the majority of bleeding is happening, and either block that blood vessel or put some glue or something in there to stop the bleeding. But they can be, they can be very serious, Jake. I mean, you know, people... You have about five liters of blood in the body. Um, with some of these injuries, you could start to bleed a liter every few minutes. So the clock ticks very, very quickly. You hold pressure, you do all the things that you think about in the field, but the key is you've got to stop the bleeding. And as again, you heard Dr. Jansen mention, within minutes of arriving there, these patients were off either to the operating room or to the radiology suite to address exactly that, to stop that bleeding. Yeah. And I'm just going to say, just as a point of privilege here, if I can, Sanjay, I guess we have decided as a society that we're going to live with this now. We're just going to, our kids are going to get shot in school. People and patients are going to get shot in hospitals. This is just our, our new reality. I'm just going to be asking you to bring more insight on air as to what these bullets actually do to our bodies. Because if we as a country have decided that this is our new reality, uh, I think we just need to do a better job of being explicit as to what this means exactly. So, so thank you so much, but I'm giving you an assignment to bring uh, charts and pictures uh, next time. I hear you. Sounds like good you. to Thank you so much. Let's uh, bring back our law enforcement experts. Uh, Chief Shields, uh, you know this area of Atlanta very well. Uh, we're hearing that the search has now expanded to Cobb County, the northern suburbs of Atlanta. Yep. What's likely happening on the ground right now, especially as uh, the, I'm sure the police there are anticipating um, sunset? So uh, my understanding is that the Atlanta Police Department has some fantastic analysts. My understanding is that they saw him in the stolen car, uh, leave the vehicle and run into a construction site. There's a number of construction sites through there. So the good news is it sounds like they have some idea of the the locale that he's in. Um, It'll be methodical. It'll be slow. You can't rush it. Um, the good news is we're not into the, the Georgia summers yet, which can be uh, draining on the officers when these uh, events go on for a prolonged period of time. Um, I think, you know, we're going to have daylight here for a few more hours or at least a couple more hours. So my hope is that they can wrap this up um, and not get get fatigued. Chief Ramsey, it's been about five hours since the shooting happened. Um, I tried to ask you this earlier and we got cut off by the press conference. So let me. Uh, let me try again. 
How critical is it that the police find the suspect before sundown or in the next few hours? Well, obviously, it's better if you're able to get this as quickly as possible. And daylight is always uh, better. Nighttime does present a different set of challenges. But right now, you have a full-blown manhunt going on. You have all the different police agencies, federal agencies, state, local, uh, working this. Uh, Erica uh, just described an area now where the person was seen. That at least gives you an area to start a grid-type search to try to find this individual. You know, why did he choose to go to Cobb County? Does he have friends there? Does he have relatives there? I mean, he's on the run. People like that tend to reach out to families and and, and friends if they can. Uh, so they've got a lot of things going on right now. They certainly know more than we know in terms of what's actually going on in that command center. But right now they are just organizing everything. So it's it's very methodical and it has to be very methodical in order to be able to bring this to a successful conclusion. They will get this guy eventually. It's just a question of when. Former FBI Special Agent Mary Ellen O'Toole is also joining us. Mary Ellen, what role are federal agencies playing right now in helping the Atlanta police locate this suspect? Well, they're right there on the ground with them um, in terms of the tactical teams and maybe the hostage negotiation teams. But they're also doing background on this individual, checking social media, checking people that that have corresponded with him through social media in the past, uh, people that he might reach out to. So they're doing a multi-pronged investigation to try to figure out if he has made contact with people, if he has tried to ask for help. Because right now, when you look at this case, he could not have planned this. He couldn't have planned last night, well, I'll steal a car and then I'll go into a construction site. He's basically winging it. And when you wing it, you make a lot of mistakes. And people close to him don't want to get wrapped up in this because if they do, they realize all they have to do is watch TV. They could get killed too. So I think he's having to reach out to a lot of people and people are are more than likely they're shutting him down. They're afraid. Jonathan, Cobb County police say that officers have checked uh, on several tips that turned out to be false alarms uh, so far. I imagine it's something of a double-edged sword asking for the public's help in such a situation. People want to help, but most of the tips, just uh, as a mathematical fact, uh, I'm sure are wrong. Yes, no, that's a really good point, Jake. And uh, that's the challenge that law enforcement faces when they're dealing with a manhunt of such a large geographical area where you're asking for the public's assistance. You're going to get a lot of uh, injects from the public saying, I believe I see somebody here that matches the description. Every single one of those, Jake, has, has to be followed up on by law enforcement. And the reason being is that we have a high threat suspect that is on the loose, armed and dangerous. In compounding the severity of the situation is that the suspect, as we've reported, you know, has a military background. So this, just an, this is not just a person with a gun. This is a person with proficiency with firearms that is on the loose right now. And they understand, being from the Coast Guard, which is also a law enforcement entity in itself, they understand law enforcement tactics. So there's a lot of challenges facing law enforcement right now in apprehending this suspect. And I agree with uh, Chief Ramsey. I think it's just a matter of time before uh, he uh, they're able to take him into custody or adjudicate this matter. But the public's assistance in doing so is critical. So while there's a lot of um, you know uh, running around with those tips and following up, the the public plays a, an essential role 
in the apprehension of this suspect. All right. Thanks, one and all. We're going to continue to bring you the breaking news on this massive manhunt for a mass shooter in Atlanta, Georgia. But first, a tense back and forth on who might be behind an alleged drone attack over the Kremlin in Russia. We have new reporting on who might be behind it. As the manhunt continues in Atlanta, on to our other top story. Who's to blame? An exiled former Russian lawmaker linked with militant groups in Russia tells CNN that he does not think it is Ukraine. Instead, it is Russian partisans whom he believes are behind the alleged drone attack over the Kremlin overnight. Video reviewed by CNN seems to show drones flying over the heavily fortified building in Russia's capital of Moscow. Russian officials claim Ukraine was trying to assassinate President Vladimir Putin, though Putin, of course, was not there at the time. And Ukraine strongly denies any involvement, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence Ukraine was involved. Nick Payton Walsh is in Ukraine tonight, where the brutal war rages on, and at least 21 people, 21 people were killed in the latest round of Russian attacks. It's on the edges of imagination, but the Kremlin insists it's real. An apparent drone flies into the Kremlin and detonates right on its dome. Captured on many cameras, a truly seismic allegation. Russia saying Ukraine sent two drones to kill President Vladimir Putin, but he wasn't home. As the smoke rose, these videos played out globally, unverified and the only slim evidence of the Kremlin's claim. It is a moment that carries great risk for the Kremlin, ahead of an annual Victory Day parade there just next week. It's embarrassing. They have claimed such a breach of security happened. And there will be calls for their battered military to find a way to escalate. Now they have. Ukrainian President Zelensky, on a visit to Finland today, issued a flat denial. We don't attack Putin or Moscow. We fight on on our territory. We are defending our villages and cities. We don't have, you know, enough weapons for this. The U.S. also not convinced. I would take anything coming out of the Kremlin with a very large shaker of salt. But fear of Russian reprisals rising again in Ukraine, where bombings already definitely do happen every day and night. Over a dozen dead this day in a recently liberated Kherson, a railway station shelled and a supermarket mid-morning. Tension mounting here ahead of an expected Ukrainian counter-offensive. So from Friday... There's a 58-hour curfew, nobody coming out of their homes. In Zaporizhia, our night was shaken by sirens and blasts. Here is where they hit. Homes. The first missile landing outside and leaving enough time for families to jump into the bath or shelter their children before the second left this hole. You know, we were in such stress, Ludmilla says, that it was only when people asked us if we were okay that we realised we were alive. Like in the Kremlin, nobody killed or injured here either, but lives destroyed and no doubt who was behind it. Now, Jake, there are two ways of looking at this. One, this is an extraordinary lapse of security around the Kremlin, one that is deeply embarrassing to Vladimir Putin himself and suggests that his grip on that tight security apparatus around him and around Russia 
may be slipping or eroding. And the second is that this is an elaborate, and we've seen it before, complex, what you call a false flag operation designed uh, by Russia to potentially falsely provide a pretext for something else. That is what people are most concerned about here in Ukraine. They've seen this in Russia's history in the past. They claim they've been attacked in a new unprecedented way, and they use that to justify some new horror. Now, many look to what's not been used so far in Russia's conventional arsenal, not too much, possibly larger bombers and also Russia's nuclear weapons. Deep fears about that. Nothing material at this stage, but Ukraine really concerned as to where this leads. Jake. Nick Payton Walsh in Dnipro, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Joining us to discuss the former Secretary of Defense and former CIA Director President, under President Obama, Leon Panetta. Secretary Panetta, um, sources tell CNN that U.S. officials had no warning that an attack like this was coming and that the Ukrainians assure them privately they had nothing to do with it. Uh, what's your take? Jake, uh, this, this really does smell like a, a false flag operation on the part of the Russians, a, a diversion, if you will. Uh, and, and if somebody was really trying to make an effort uh, at an assassination attempt, uh, it was pretty far-fetched. Uh, I've been to the Kremlin. Uh, the Kremlin is a fortress, uh, and Putin doesn't exactly take walks uh, around the Kremlin. There's no rose garden uh, at the Kremlin. So uh, this, is, uh, this is clearly a, an allegation that uh, is false. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of truth to it. And at most, it probably is one of these diversionary things that kind of marks the beginning of the spring offensives that we're going to see pretty soon. So, yeah, that was going to be my next question. If this is indeed a false flag, um, is this, do you think, Russia trying to create uh, uh, some sort of justification for further uh, nihilistic barbarism? Not that they need it, really. I mean, they've been doing it now for more than a year anyway. Yeah, no, but, uh, you know, it, it clearly follows the the uh, the Putin playbook here, which is uh, to uh, create uh, these kinds of false diversions in order to justify some kind of action that they're going to take. Uh, I, I don't know what that action would be. They're sending a lot of drones over Ukraine. They're sending a lot of missiles over the Ukraine. Uh, I don't know what additionally uh, it, the Russians could do at this point. Uh, that uh, they're not doing now. But having said that, uh, I think that the Ukrainians probably are engaging in some diversions themselves uh, in Ukraine uh, to try to make sure that the Russians don't quite know where they're going to show up in terms of their offensive. Uh, and I'm sure the Russians are now doing the same. We're going to see a lot of that uh, as we uh, as we work up to what I think is without question uh, going to be uh, a spring offensive, certainly by the Ukrainians and possibly by the Russians as well. So Russian state media claims that this drone was a Ukrainian-made drone called a UJ-22 attack drone that theoretically would have had to have flown more than 300 miles to get to Moscow. That's just from the nearest Ukrainian border. Um, would a drone like that even have the capacity to inflict major damage on a building so heavily fortified as the Kremlin? Well, yeah, Jake, uh, I've, uh, I've headed up uh, drone operations uh, when I was a CIA director. 
uh, if you're serious about using a drone, uh, the way you have to do it is to frankly conduct a great deal of surveillance in order to make sure that, uh, uh, that you're going to hit the right target. Uh, as far as I can see here, there wasn't any kind of surveillance uh, involved. Uh, there were just a couple drones that were up in the air. So it doesn't strike me that this was a serious effort at certainly at an assassination, which is far-fetched. Was it an operation to try to uh, create some kind of damage at the Kremlin? Uh, who knows? Uh, I think it really smells like the Russians uh, trying to set this up as some kind of diversion. Uh, it, it, there just isn't a logical explanation to try to use drones to try to assassinate Putin in the Kremlin. That's just unbelievable. Well, it's also just, I mean, anyone who knows anything about Putin knows, uh, well, first of all, I mean, we, the Ukrainians are fighting a war. They're defending themselves. Nobody uh, should think that they wouldn't grab an opportunity uh, to inflict harm on the man killing their children uh, if they could. But the idea that they would send a little drone to attack the outside of the Kremlin as a way to, to get Putin when we, I know, and I'm certainly not Ukrainian intelligence, I know that Putin's not spending the night in the Kremlin. No, that's, you know, if anything, uh, Putin just goes there for ceremonial activities. The place is well fortified. Uh, Putin is, uh, uh, there's a tremendous amount of security around him uh, at that place. Uh, if, you're, if you're even going to think about a possible uh, assassination, you would look uh, at probably at uh, his residences outside of, of uh, Moscow. Uh, and uh, near the lake, uh, he's got a residence as well. But again, you'd have to do some surveillance to make sure that you've got a target. Otherwise, you know, you're just wasting time and, and, and not really uh, doing anything that's going to be effective. So I, I just see this uh, as, uh, as a lot of baloney that uh, the Russians are throwing out there uh, in order to kind of justify uh, any further action that they're going to take against Ukraine. Former CIA Director and Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, always good to see you, sir. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, Jake. Up next to CNN Exclusive, find out who was inside the room when former Vice President Mike Pence testified before a federal grand jury. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a CNN exclusive special counsel, Jack Smith, sat in on former Vice President Mike Pence's testimony last week before the federal grand jury investigating the efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. CNN's Caitlin Palance is with us. Caitlin, this is the first time we know of of uh, special counsel Smith sitting in on an actual grand jury proceeding. That's right, Jake. It just underlines how unusual this situation was, having the former vice president testify to the federal grand jury investigating January 6th, compelling him to come in under court order to speak about his interactions with his former boss, Donald Trump, then the president. And we do know through multiple sources, speaking to Kristen Holmes, Jamie Gangel, and me, that uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, did sit in and witness some of that interaction. Uh, he also had some of his own interactions with Pence. We don't know exactly how that went, though we are told from one source that it was respectful between the two men. But there are many prosecutors that are working this case, uh, Jake. And so having Jack Smith there, he doesn't have to be there. He's almost 
almost never there. I've never seen him. We've never heard of him uh, setting foot in the courthouse before in this investigation. So it really is not just atypical to learn that he was there for the Pence testimony, but also just atypical to have a situation like this where Mike Pence, the former vice president, was testifying to the grand jury. How important of a witness is Vice President Pence? Well, it appears that at very least uh, he's a significant witness of stature to be putting before the grand jury. We do believe that he could have advanced uh, some of the information that the grand jury is learning about January 6th. And this does come at the end uh, or potentially at the end of this January 6th investigation, making him a pretty big deal. But there are other people, too, who could be even more important witnesses. One person we don't know uh, at this point whether or not he has testified to a grand jury. We know the Justice Department has subpoenaed, got a court to say he must come in. That's Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff. Meadows would here in this investigation potentially be even a bigger witness uh, if and when he does testify to the grand jury. Jake? All right, Kaylin Palance, thank you so much. Coming up, the Fed just hiked interest rates yet again. What that means for your wallet and your savings next. And our money lead, welcome to round 10 in the Fed's fight against inflation. For the 10th straight time since March of last year, the Federal Reserve announced it is raising interest rates this time by a quarter point to a 16-year high. Let's bring in CNN's Matt Egan and CNN's Rahel Solomon. Matt, Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, has a lot of skeptics out there. Uh, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren told me six weeks ago that she thinks that Powell wants a recession because she want, he wants to bring inflation down so he's going to have joblessness go up. Do you think that today's action is going to feed his critics like Senator Warren, who say he's, he's ignoring the needs of the middle class? Well, Jake, it will, of course, feed his critics. But I don't think it's fair to say that Jerome Powell is in any way rooting for a recession. But he's willing to accept one if that's what it takes to fix inflation. This latest interest rate hike today lifts borrowing costs to levels unseen since late 2007, just before the Great Recession. So the Fed is making it more expensive for all of us to borrow in the hopes that this is going to cool off inflation, get the cost of living back down to healthy levels. Now, this rate hike was a unanimous decision. But it was also a controversial one because it's coming just days after the second biggest bank failure in American history. These recent bank failures have been caused in part by the Fed's spike in interest rates. And some experts do fear that the Fed is basically throwing gasoline on the fire, that they're going to make the banking crisis even worse. Now, in part because of the stress in the banking system, the Fed is signaling that it could be ready to soon wrap up its fight against inflation. The Fed made changes to its statement and Fed Chair Jerome Powell. He did drop some hints that the Fed could soon be ready to pause. But, Jake, I would note Powell made it clear they are in no rush to cut interest rates anytime soon. Rahel, what's the real world impact of this on the folks watching today on American consumers. Well, Jake, the impact of this announcement of this rate hike is that if you are carrying debt and you have an interest rate that is not locked in, a variable interest rate, so think 
anything from credit cards to auto loans to personal loans. If you are carrying debt, uh, that is likely to get more expensive. And I want to just go through some of the debt, for example, interest rate hikes, uh, credit card rates are at some of the record highs we've seen uh, in history, right? 20.2% uh, in April compared to 16%. Uh, auto loans, you, ma- you match sort of APR for car loans with the higher cost of cars. And we've seen the average monthly rate of uh, the average monthly payment for a new car to finance a new car, more than $730 a month, personal loans as well. Here's what I think is really interesting, Jake, mortgage rates. We've, no- we've seen mortgage rates sort of hover between let's call it five and seven percent over the last year. The Mortgage Bankers Association, after this Fed announcement, put out a note saying that they actually expect the peak of mortgage rates to be behind us, that they actually expect mortgage rates to continue to lower, but that's assuming that the economy is slow. So perhaps a silver lining in terms of mortgage rates if you are in the market for a home. The Mortgage Bankers Association is saying that it expects the worst is behind us there. Well, let's hope so. But Matt, as we've discussed already, the Fed move comes amid this ongoing fragility in the banking sector. The second largest bank failure in U.S. history just happened. Uh, is this a risky move, the 10th straight interest rate hike? It is a risky move, but it is one that they felt they needed to do because inflation, which is their primary focus right now, inflation remains well above what is considered healthy. Here's the problem, though. The Fed has spiked interest rates at the fastest pace since the early 1980s under Paul Volcker. And the risk here all along was that they would end up breaking something, either in the real economy or the financial markets or both. And now it looks like they did break something in the banking system. And this bank stress could potentially cause a credit crunch or even a recession. Uh, That's why Moody's Analytics chief economist Mark Zandi, he told me today he thinks that this is a mistake for the Fed to raise rates. He thinks that this is a risk that they don't have to take. All right, Matt Egan and Rahel Solomon, great to have you both on. Thank you. While we wait for that update on the manhunt for the gunman in the mass shooting in Atlanta, we're going to take a look at another deadly shooting, this one at a school, this one not in the United States. We're going to go live to Serbia next. Stay with us. A manhunt is underway in Atlanta right now, looking for the suspect accused of shooting five people at a medical center earlier today, killing one, critically wounding three that shooting is the 190th, 190th mass shooting in the United States this year alone, according to the Gun Violence Archive. 190, that kind of number is frankly unheard of in other parts of the world. But today it was a heartbreaking reality, a mass shooting for families in Belgrade, the capital of Serbia. A teenage gunman is accused there of killing nine people, all but one of them children at a local school. CNN's Fred Plykin is live for us in Belgrade. And, and Fred, mass killings, obviously far less common in Europe than in the United States. Um, tell us about how rare this is in Serbia. Yeah, absolutely rare. And that's certainly one of the things that we're hearing from the folks on the ground here as well. And of course, because of that, Jake, it absolutely hits this community here as well. As you can see behind me, there are still a lot of people who are coming out here. And it's only it's about 10 minutes to midnight right now. They're still laying down flowers, paying their respects. There's a lot of anger, despair and, of course, sorrow as well. As these people say, look, this is something that simply does not happen in this country. In fact, people that we're speaking to say normally they only hear about things like this from the United States. Here's what happened. Horror inside a school classroom, a scene all too familiar in the U.S., but this is Serbia's capital, Belgrade. 
This is the deadliest mass shooting in the country in over a decade. Moments after arriving at the prestigious Vladislav Ribnikar Elementary School, a 13-year-old student took out his father's gun and shot the security guard before turning it on pupils, according to officials. There was one girl at her desk, another at the piano. He took their lives. Then he went out into the corridor to the history classroom. He went into the classroom and immediately shot the teacher and the students there from the door. According to eyewitnesses, the boy shot the female history teacher as terrified students hid under their desks. She was rushed to hospital along with six injured children, according to CNN affiliate N1. The hospital's director detailed severe brain injuries and gunshot wounds to the legs. The perpetrator was arrested in the schoolyard and let out in handcuffs after he called the police himself and told them what he did. I asked, where's my kid, says one girl's father, describing the moment he realized she was in the history class. She escaped, but when he found her, she was in shock, he says. The crime had been planned for over a month. The teen had drawn a sketch of the attack that looked like something from a video game or a horror movie, according to Belgrade's police chief. Locals told CNN the incident came out of nowhere. This never happened in Serbia before. Like We only heard about this news from the United States. Outside the school, these parents are the lucky ones. Their children made it out alive. But a nation is now in mourning, and questions are asked over how this could have happened. And Jake, one of the things that's also very different here um, than in the United States, and certainly something that also causes a lot of anger here among a lot of people who are out here, and quite frankly, in general, in this country, is that the teenager who was behind this can't actually be held criminally liable for all this because he is underage. He's only 13 years old. Now, something that has happened is that the boy's father has been detained, as has his mother. Apparently, he took the weapon, the weapons uh, from his father's safe. And also the Serbian president, he came out tonight and he said that the boy is going to be placed into a psychiatric institution. Of course, that's something that does very little to console those who lost loved ones today. Jake. Horrible story. CNN's Fred Pleitkin in Belgrade, Serbia. Thank you so much. The next chapter in the fight to save an Oklahoma death row inmate whom even the state's attorney general says should not be executed. Attorneys for Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop are trying to stop his execution date until he's given a new clemency hearing. In a new filing, Glossop's attorneys claim that his constitutional rights were violated last week when the state's parole board denied him clemency. The vote was tied after one member of the board recused himself because his wife was one of the original prosecutors in Glossop's case. Glossop's attorneys have argued that made for an unfair vote. He was convicted in 1998 of murder for hire. He has always maintained his innocence, and there is lots of reasons to question whether he should be executed. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead. CNN, our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room right next door. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.